Beyond the Collabo Babble is now in session. Bill, that has to do with, uh, with really understanding addiction. I think uh, I grew up in a military family. Much of my career has been uh, in the military, either active duty or reserve. And I really grew up in a environment where the mindset was addiction was a failure of willpower. Beyond the Collab of Babel, meet the people behind the studies, programs, projects, and initiatives. Beyond the Collab of Babel, keeping you motivated and focused through the challenges. Beyond the Collab of Babel, sparking innovation, improvement, and reform. Beyond the Collab of Babel, listen, learn, lead, take action. Listen, learn, lead, take action. Listen, learn, lead, take action. Welcome to Beyond the Collabo Babble, a podcast committed to introducing and sharing stories of collaboration in the Colorado courts that are leading to systems improvement and systems reform. Through the sharing of information and knowledge during this podcast, you will meet the people and approaches that will help you take action. The star of today's podcast is District Court Judge David Shakes from the 4th Judicial District, El Paso County. I am your host, Bill Delisio, the Family Law Program Manager at the Colorado State Court Administrator's Office. Court Services Division. Judge Shakes, good morning. How are you? Fine, thanks. Well, thanks for being here today. And um, you just want to tell the audience, we're in my office at the State Court Administrator's Office, but why did you come down to Denver today? I'm here for a court services meeting later this afternoon. Okay, yeah. So the collaboration of the branch, right? You served on this committee (laughs) for how long? You know, Bill, I was thinking about that driving uh, either nine or 10 years. I started when it was planning and analysis, and it's evolved to court services, and is truly a, a good example of, of collaboration and incorporates in the work of the committee, I think, things that we'll be talking about in our discussion today. Okay, wonderful. So before we get into the, the topic of court cultures and collaboration, can you just tell me what does Beyond the Collabo Babble mean to you? Well, it means to me getting beyond the buzzwords of collaboration and really understanding that the root of collaboration is the verb collaborate, which means to me a method of accomplishing change. In our particular instance, a method of taking action to accomplish change within the judicial branch. Uh, And I think it's easy to define what it is as opposed to what it isn't. And what collaboration isn't is getting buy-in. When I hear that phrase, we have to get buy-in from the stakeholders, I get concerned that it really is code for, I have a good idea and I wanna assemble the stakeholders to help uh, me or help uh, me get them to implement my good idea. And that's not what collaboration is all about. Nor is collaboration an in-state in and of itself. When I was in Iraq, which we may talk about later, I had a lot of meetings with folks at the State Department. And for them, and and I don't mean to demean them in any way, but for them, having a meeting and having the right people at the meeting was an accomplishment in and of itself. And me and the military folks were there saying, well, okay, fine, but what are we going to do? What's the next step? So I think what I, to answer your question, what I hope we uh, understand at the end of this discussion is that collaboration really is a method to accomplishing change and not an in in, in and of itself. Okay. Can you tell us the story of how you became a district court judge and a little bit of the background uh, you referenced to Iraq and the time you served there? Just tell us kind of the story of your career, legal, legally and otherwise. I went to law school in Pittsburgh, and uh, after law school, became a judge advocate in the Army. Uh, For two years, I was a prosecutor, and for two years, I was a defense counsel. Uh, After that, uh, my first assignment was in Colorado Springs, decided to stay in Colorado Springs, and then had my own practice for a while, and after about a year, joined up with a firm, which was primarily a commercial and real estate firm. I was responsible for the litigation within that firm. And I did that for about 20 years. Um, 
about 20 years into that, uh, some folks asked me, including some judges, if I had, had I ever thought about being a judge. And I really hadn't. I had in my mind that to be a judge, you had to have been a prosecutor or public defender, and I'd really been neither of those. But when Governor Owens was uh, selected, the word was put out that he might be interested in folks that had uh, commercial backgrounds and civil litigation backgrounds. And in fact, he appointed some of my uh, friends who had those backgrounds. And for the first time, becoming a judge seemed to be a possibility. And um, I was asked by some folks to apply and decided that that would be a good way to um, serve the public and frankly get away from the part of the law I didn't like, which was sending out bills and talking to clients about billing and filling out time slips and those kinds of things. So that whole package put together got me to the point of deciding that um, it'd be a good way to serve the public and continue what I really like about the law, which is the intellectual challenge and using uh, the law to resolve disputes and uh, accomplish, uh, accomplish other things that I think are important. All right. Um, I asked you to join our podcast in particular on a topic that I find really interesting and that um, I know that you've been working on for, I don't know, probably about 10 years too. And that was the different court cultures. And um, as I understand it or remember it, maybe being the high performance court framework that the National Center for State Courts put together. And when did you first learn about this topic of court cultures and why did it appeal to you? What was it about when you started to hear about collaboration and court cultures and high-functioning courts on a, from an administrative side, what kind of grabbed your attention? What really got me interested in this area was my experience in Iraq. Okay. And I sort of came to this uh, area backwards. By that, I mean I was thrown into a different court culture in Iraq, working with collaboration, in collaboration with military folks, State Department folks, uh, folks from all sorts of non-governmental organizations. And then after I came back from Iraq, then began to do my reading about court cultures. And uh, so I came to it in, in a way backwards. What interested me in the area was when I was in Iraq, it was very clear. My job was primarily working with Iraqi judges. It was very clear that I was dealing with a different culture. Less obvious when I came back to the United States that there were court cultures there as well. And that got me interested in the area. Fortunately, uh, it was my COIFI project that got me to look at this in, a, in an organized way. And frankly, uh, Kent Wagner directed me to a book, Trial Courts as Organizations, that is the uh, intellectual and statistical foundation for the concept of trial courts as falling into four different types of court cultures. And the research then is set out in, in that book, Trial Courts as Organizations. There's a summary of that research, though, that you can also find in the National Center for State Courts, Future Trends in State Courts, Edition 2010. They have about a six or eight page summary of, of what we're talking about. And essentially what we're talking about as far as co court culture, first is something we ought to define. And what, what do we mean by court culture? And what I take from the readings is that what we're talking about is the social architecture of the courthouse or organization that you're looking at. By that I mean the assumptions and values, and shared understandings about how we do things. And it's tough, uh, because there isn't a book that says, this is the court culture of the 18th Judicial District or the 4th Judicial District. These frequently are unstated and implicit values and shared concepts about how you're going to do things. And that's a pretty good indication, I think, of when you're dealing with a culture of an organization, when somebody says, well, that's not really appropriate, or that's not really how we do things, then you know you've touched on those unstated and implicit assumptions about how we, about how we do things. 
So that's generally what we're talking mm-hmm. about when we talk about culture and organizational culture, and specifically culture at the courthouses. So what the research tells us is that there are four distinct court cultures. The four are the result of two axes, a sociability axes. By that I mean some courts put a higher value on sociability, consensus building, uh, getting along, and other courts put a higher value on accomplishing the mission, and that's the solidarity axis. So when you run these two axes against each other, you end up with four quadrants, and those define the four different types of court culture. Ranging from very hierarchical, by that I mean there's a very set decision-making process. Uh, The chief judge or clerk of court or district executive uh, clearly in charge. Uh, There are written standard operating procedures and a, a very defined way of making decisions. At the other end of that spectrum are autonomous courts where judges are pretty much on their own, like to be on their own. And if you're going to make any sort of change, you need to address each individual judge independently. These are the folks that are going to point out and say something like, I'm a constitutional officer and I can do things as I see fit. Um, So those are just two examples. There are four different types. The group that most readily uh, gravitates to collaboration is the networked group. These are folks that understand that as you, one, they want to make change. How you go about that is involving other stakeholders. And collaboration is a natural uh, part of the networked group. The fourth group, I I guess I should mention, is the communal group. And this group is very much into consensus building, doing things as a team, being concerned about how change will affect their colleagues. Uh, very high in the sociability scale, but not really too focused on accomplishing a mission or uh, making change. All right, and, and as you've gone through the the four different types of court cultures, if, is it possible in any one of those cultures for a collaborative effort or a court to be really high performing and um, meeting? Me- Accomplishing the mission, regardless of the culture. I mean, they all have the pos- the uh, potential of that, correct? Yes, yes. So frequently, when you t- talk about these four different types, people tend to put value judgments on what is better or not so good, and that's not really the purpose of of this discussion. The purpose of this discussion, I think, is learning how to collaborate within the culture that you've been given. Uh, some groups that work type of court culture are going to gravitate more naturally to collaboration, but that doesn't mean that there's not a role for collaboration in hierarchical groups, autonomous groups, or communal groups. Yeah. And you mentioned buy-in, which when when you were talking about why you don't like it, I was thinking of, at least the way that I understood you were describing it is, you're trying to sell something to people. You're trying to convince people to get on board with an idea as opposed to coming together with people and sharing ideas and looking at what's the possibility of change and is this change important to everybody and how will it impact them and how will it benefit them and maybe if we do this what is the story of what the future might look like and can we all see that coming and and something we want to commit to trying to create together as opposed to judge shake saying i got this great idea and if I could just get the 20 people who are the most influential in this organization to get on board with it, I think we can do it. You're talking about sitting down and really thinking about who the right people are, but also are we networked are we, or are we more hierarchical? And what's my strategy for reaching out to people and engaging them in a conversation about what the future might look like? Exactly. You've summarized that very well, Bill. The... The key component of collaboration is summarized in a a little footnote that our um, deputy executive, district executive, puts on the bottom of all our emails. It says uh, from Satchel Page, no one of us is as smart as all of us. If you're going to do collaboration effectively, it starts with the recognition that two and two can really equal five. 
Now, as a mathematical proposition, that's impossible. But what I'm talking about is organizational behavior and human behavior. And what I hope we get to in a true collaborative effort is the sum, the change that this group can make, is greater than the individual parts. And collaboration, to me, really means a commitment and recognition that you may have to change your own operations and your own procedures as you listen to the other people at the table. In accomplishing the mission, in our case, system improvement in the judicial branch, there may have to be, most likely be, changes by all the participants. So collaboration is much more than communication or coordination. It's actually looking at your systems and seeing how changes can be made to get to five from two and two. So coordination, this is an interesting one. I think I've heard it in other contexts, but I'm, I'm interested in hearing your perspective on that a little bit more. Um, not that coordination is bad. I would say there's some benefits to it, and maybe that's a step on the way to a true collaboration. But what does coordination look like to you as opposed to the, the collaboration? Great point, and I think you described it accurately just a minute ago. I see it as a step in progression. Coordination is uh, different organizations or parts of the team uh, working together, but not necessarily changing their own procedures. So this is us working with the sheriff, for example, to let them know what days we're going to need a lot more uh, folks transported from the jail to the courthouse. Uh, That's working together and coordination. Collaboration would be, what can we do? Maybe we shouldn't all have our criminal dockets on Mondays. So working together, the sheriff may change its procedures. We may want to change or look at changing how we do things so that at the end of the day, we we have a better system. It's listening. Well, first having the right people at the table, listening, and then being open to the idea that you may have to make changes in your systems and processes for the greater good. If the listener is sitting there not sure what their court culture is, how important is it to figure that out first? Or what are some strategies for thinking through, maybe looking at the paper and kind of getting a sense of how do we operate in this theoretical these quadrants that you've described for communal, networked, autonomous, and hierarchy? Great question. So uh, in the military, we'd call it intelligence preparation of the battlefield, more commonly referred to as understanding the lay of the land. So it really is important. Uh, Professor Schein, who's written a lot about organizational culture, says that if, if you're going to accomplish change and don't understand the operating environment, if you don't understand the culture, the culture will manage and ultimately dominate you. Mm. So you really have to understand what is what is the lay of the land. How are decisions made in this organization? Who are people in positions of power? Who has actually the power, who, which may be different? Who are the influencers? Who are likely to be the naysayers? People that you have to convince or um, ensure that their, their voice is heard. Uh, who are uh, the right people, and by that I mean the people that can make decisions and the people that are affected or involved in the change that you want to accomplish at all levels, yeah. from the court judicial assistant that has to uh, change how she's doing things or he's doing things, uh, to the sheriff, the judge, the whole, the whole Spectrum of folks right. need District to be District attorney, public defender. When I think about, we have so many different organizations that come together in a courtroom, and a change by one judge on one docket, right, can affect a ripple effect across not only the other dockets but all these other outside agencies. Exactly. So there's when you're looking at collaboration at the courthouse, there's really sort of two aspects to it: those kinds of things that are are internal to the courthouse, um, and those changes or systems improvements that you want to make that have external players. Many of the things that we do have external players. 
In this environment, collaboration is particularly important because the judge really has no power or control over the external players. Uh, these are all independent, frequently, I should say, independent agencies. For example, I can't really tell the sheriff what to do. I can't tell the school district what to do in his truancy uh, procedures and operations. Um, how the Department of Human Services staffs a case is really up to them. So collaboration at that level, at the external level, dealing with external actors, is really, uh, is really critical. Um, the power of a judge uh, is really a two-edged sword with regard to collaboration. The good news is, if a judge invites people to be on a committee, they're, they're likely to respond. So getting the right people at the table, which is a key part of a successful effort in systems change, uh, the judge can do that. Once the people are at the table, though, it's important that the judge uh, leave the robe at the door and not take that uh, position of power and authority into the committee room. In the Army, when uh, you become a colonel and uh, general counsel, staff judge advocate, you go to a school. And I remember one of the things many years ago, but one of the things that the instructors said was, uh, as a colonel, you have to remember that when you go to a Christmas party or any sort of activity, the fun doesn't begin until you leave. <laughs> and that's stuck with me now for over, for over 20 years. It's a recognition, clear in the military, less clear at the courthouse, that you as a judge are in a position of power, even though I think most judges are humble. Uh, they don't recognize the uh, effect that our position has on other people at the table. So to be part of a collaborative effort, the judge in particular really needs to understand that you need to speak last. Uh, you can kill a collaboration easily by walking into the meeting and saying, hey, I've got a great idea. Here's the problem. Here's my solution. What do you guys think? Well, unless you've created a truly collaborative team, you have stifled the discussion mm -hmm. just by putting your idea on the table first. People see you differently than you see yourself, right? And exactly. especially if, if the meeting is occurring in the courthouse, that's even more so you're in the position of power, um, other than if you're walking into the department, maybe just you're on their ground, so it's a little different. But yeah, I see your point. We have a lot of collaborations in the courts, and even with the best of intentions, you still bring with you an office that you represent, and that office represents formal power. And if people don't really know you on a personal level, we live in a society where hierarchy kind of plays out, unspoken. Sometimes we're not even conscious of how much it's playing into the, into the room and the discussion. You're right. And the judge really has to work hard to, to recognize, recognize that. And it's even true uh, when you're dealing with external actors. One of the best examples of collaboration that I've been part of is a group called Joint Initiatives in, in uh, El Paso County. And Joint Initiatives is a, a collaboration that includes all the chief executive offices of organizations that deal with children. So the presiding juvenile judge, the sheriff, the chief of police, the superintendent of schools, the director of the hospital. And when you get those kinds of people in the room, first of all, you've got the right people. You've got decision makers that uh, are not accountable to you as, as a judge. And even in that group, I've noticed that there's some deference to me as a judge when all those people are more powerful yeah. than I am. Yeah. But it's, there's something to the title and the position that judges, I don't, judges have to work hard to ensure that that position does not dominate the discussion. You get the point. I'm saying that we do look to the court in our society as a place to resolve conflict, as a place for justice. And, and, and it is, in some ways, looked up upon by all. You're right. And not just in a um, dispute resolution format. I've 
had the opportunity to do some reading and research and what do judges in other cultures do. And uh, judges in France and Germany are not routinely called upon to sit on commissions and panels. And it's cultural. In the United States, judges are looked upon as sort of the wise men of the community in ways beyond just resolving disputes and wearing a black robe in the courtroom. And I don't want that to sound uh, pompous or arrogant, but it's an understanding, as you just pointed out, in our culture, judges uh, have a role um, that um, people expect that they'll bring something to the table beyond just their legal knowledge. Yeah. And the, and the flipping back to the culture, when you were in Iraq and working with Iraqi judges, that was probably the way that the community viewed the judges there may have been different than here. I mean, what did you see in those differences or how did judges interact with, with their community in Iraq that might be different than here? Well, um, I learned as my role was to work with the Iraqi criminal court judges, I learned early on that it's a, it was a very hierarchical system. I thought the way to accomplish change in the Iraqi criminal justice system was to work with the folks that were on the ground, the chief investigative judge of Iraq, the chief trial judge, um, the chief of the juvenile courts. And what I found out uh, early on was that nothing happened in Iraq, in Baghdad, in Mosul, Basra, or Erbil, unless the chief justice approved it. Oh, wow. So uh, I changed my strategy. Okay. And to work in a hierarchical system, uh, the way to do that was for me to meet, which I did uh, frequently, with the Chief Justice of Iraq. Yeah. And I'll give you a specific example. I had an idea. We had a problem in Iraq. The U.S. forces had, at the height of the surge when I was there in 2007, over 20,000 detainees in our custody compared to the five or 600 that we had in Guantanamo. And we needed to find a way to identify the serious threats to our security, the folks that belong to Al-Qaeda, and the less severe or less serious threats, and get the less serious threats out of our detention and back home. And ultimately, we developed the idea of a conditional release. There's really not any bond mm -hmm. in Arab legal systems or bail. So once someone is arrested, they stay in custody until their case is resolved, which could be several years. So that was not a good outcome for us. So we developed, ultimately developed this idea of a conditional release. By that I mean very similar to what we did in the United States in the Civil War. We would release uh, captured uh, Confederate soldiers or Union soldiers on their promise that they would not return to the battlefield. So my thought was, let's do the same thing. Let's release the lower level, the low threat guys, insurgents that we had in our detention, on their promise that they would not return to the fight, and supervised by a sheikh or community leader who would pledge on their honor that they would ensure that this person would not return to the fight. So I presented this idea to the uh, chief investigative judge of Iraq, and he said no. This is, this is not consistent with Arab legal culture. No, the idea is not going to work. Well, I had the opportunity to present the idea to the chief justice of Iraq with the chief investigative judge there. The chief justice said, yep, we can make that work. And the chief investigative judge, who just a couple weeks earlier said absolutely no, said, oh, yes, 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 we can make this work. So my point was, in that culture, the decision maker was the chief justice. Once I realized that and focused my efforts there, we were able to accomplish uh, accomplish a lot more. Wow! Yeah, and I and I think of Colorado, and let's just take one example. That's judicial assignments and rotations. We are very careful to leave those decisions to the local courts to decide the best way to organize their resources and their dockets. Um, and I don't think people would take kindly to being told how to do that. And that's been my experience for about 20 years. But in Iraq, it sounds like if the chief justice said, this is how we're going to set up dockets everywhere in the country, people would generally get in line behind it. Oh, huh? that's, that, 
very, uh, very accurate. That's exactly how things exactly how things operate, and that really reflects the culture I think of the whole country, where for so many decades everything's been driven by the government in Baghdad. Okay. Uh, unlike say in the United States, where we have a federal system with states and and even within the states in the judicial system, uh, judicial districts that generally want to be able to make their own decisions. So we've talked about the different court cultures. We've talked about the impacts on our internal customers or within the courthouse and the external customers and some of those approaches. Is there anything in, 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 the, in the framework, though, for court cultures that we haven't touched on that, we, that you think is really important before we move on? I think a key point um, I'd like to go back and emphasize, and that is that this isn't a uh, value judgment about what cultures are good or bad. Yeah. The key point here is uh, playing the hand you've been dealt, uh, understanding the lay of the land. Uh, this were a military operation. If you're in a country with no airports, then that's what you got. Uh, you can't wish, oh, how wonderful it would be if I had airports. You don't have any, so you need to go to Plan B. Similarly, um, if you're in, you know, wish you were in a networked culture, but in fact you're in a communal or autonomous culture, then you're going to make progress by understanding that, not trying to change that, but to deal with the culture that you've been, you've been dealt with. The nuance of this, and let me ask you what you think about this, in certain circumstances, whether it's for the Colorado Judicial Branch as a whole or an individual judicial district, do you think, based on the topic or the area, that sometimes we might actually see ourselves being more hierarchical for certain types of decisions? And maybe sometimes that's 100% the only way it could be. I think of like a budget crisis is, is occurring. Uh, the chief justice is going to make some really big policy decisions about what we're going to do with our budget or not do with our budget as a partner of the overall government of Colorado. And that might come down. And it may be different than what we would do when revenues are coming in, budget requests look like they're pretty typical increases, you know, incremental increases every year. Same with, I think, a judicial district. There's probably going to be a time where the chief judge may be more. Um, communal, but we have a decision here. Um, we got a new judge ship assigned to us, and they're going to make the decision on what kind of docket they're going to assign to them. So does this add to the nuance in the courts? Do you see this playing out in your career where maybe on certain certain decisions, we kind of, you, you talked about this as quadrants and a grid. I mean, you're not always in one place, right? Very, uh, very good question, um, and it highlights the research, because you're right. What the research says is uh, this. There are differences. I've been talking so far about court cultures being monolithic within the district, and that's not really true. I've been focusing in, in the discussion so far about the court culture as it relates to primarily judges okay. and how judges make decisions on administrative matters. But what the research shows uh, is that within a courthouse, different organizations within the courthouse may have a different culture. For example, the clerk of court, uh, the operation of the clerk of court may be much different than, say, probation. So you have to look at your particular organization um, to determine how you're going to operate. It might be that although the overall culture of the courthouse is very hierarchical, Within probation, it may be very communal. So you have to understand the particular subgroup that you're operating in as well. The next part of this is what kind of decision is being made? What, what's the environment? It may not always be an environment that collaboration is appropriate. The response to a crisis, be it budget crisis, a snowstorm, a fire, a J-Pod crashing yeah. uh, may not be an, an environment where collaboration is, uh, is appropriate. Uh, collaboration probably isn't the right way to manage a crisis. Yeah. 
Do you have a story from your judicial career about collaboration that you might want to share with the audience? I do. I do. Um, and this is what uh, ultimately got referred to as the yellow sheet, yellow sheet policy. And the background of this was, we had uh, Judge uh, Tom Kennedy, who's now retired, looked at those uh, DNN cases where we were not meeting the deadlines and tried to figure out what kinds of cases are these and why are they taking so long. And what he figured out was that they were those cases where there was also a collateral criminal case, frequently a sex assault allegation, and that these cases were taking so long because the DNN court uh, maybe was hesitant to do things because it might impact something in the criminal court. The criminal court was hesitant to do things as quickly as they ordinarily would because of impact in the DNN case, uh, parental rights issues, uh, parenting time issues, and perhaps some um, manipulation by counsel to slow things down all resulted in some pretty uh, disappointing statistics as far as how quickly we could resolve these cases. So uh, when he brought this to my attention, we decided to get the right people at, at the table, the Department of Human Services through the county attorney, public defender's office, district attorney's office, uh, sheriff's department, office of the guardian ad litem in the 4th Judicial District. We have a guardian ad litem office. Uh, similar to a public defender's office that the GALs work out of. Um, get all those people at the table, outline the problem, and then listen to what potential solutions could be. And from that uh, truly collaborative effort, uh, the idea came that we should have both cases in front of one judge. And that was controversial. Um, the district attorney's office was worried that the judges, that the criminal judges handling DNN cases might become too soft and too much of social workers. Uh, the DNN side was worried that if you gave the criminal judges the DNN cases, they really weren't um, up to speed or uh, focused on the best interests of the children. Uh, so it, it took some work, but ultimately, uh, as we listened to the various positions uh, of the parties, this idea that we should have one, one family, one judge, at least in the DNN and related criminal area, uh, was the best way to go. So first, it was collaborative in that we got the right people to the table. Uh, we had a particular problem that we needed to solve. We weren't just collaborating for the sake of Collaborating, yeah, you know, like data driven too. It sounds like you investigated the, the the where was the problem exactly, exactly. root cause, root cause analysis. And Judge Kennedy had done a, a great job in that, and then listened to how we might solve the problem, and ultimately developed a policy that the uh, criminal case would be transferred to be handled with the DNN case. And the way the dockets are set up in the 4th Judicial District, there were DNN judges then that also had criminal dockets so that we could facilitate that uh, process without doing too much change in how docket assignments were being done. And then we started with a pilot project to see how this was actually going to work. To my surprise, folks that I thought would be opposed to the idea, specifically the Public Defender's Office, turned out not to be opposed to it. And in fact, the judges that had DNN dockets that were now picking up these criminal cases liked it uh, as well. So I think that's an effort that reflects the benefit of collaboration, a solution that may not have been what we were talking about initially, but evolved by listening to the input of all the parties at the table. It's a great example. I didn't know you guys did that. I remember that you were talking about it, but mm -hmm. I, I never followed up. Followed up, and so to to this day, that that is the practice in the fourth judicial district. If you have a dependency and neglect with a criminal charge that is involving um, sex 
a sex sex abuse uh, or a, a sexual offense. Not just sex offenses, okay. just any related criminal case. Oh, any related. So okay. it could be, uh, you know, an assault, um, cruelty to the children in some way. It's not just criminal okay. cases. Okay. But what drove the uh, inspection and looking at the data was primarily the sex assault cases. Okay. So um, do you have three takeaways for taking action from uh, to the audience from you to the audience for this episode of Beyond the Collab about? I do. Uh, the first is uh, understand the culture. Understand the lay of the land. What, what am I, what are we dealing with here with this particular group? Uh, how do they make decisions? Those kinds of things. The, the court culture issues that we've been talking about. The second is get the right people on the bus. And that, I think, is the lesson of Jim Collins in his book, Good to Great, we looked at what makes a truly exceptional corporation, and it's getting the right people on the bus. By that, I do not mean people that all agree with you, or people that you think are going to agree with the particular idea that you're coming up with, mm -hmm. uh, but people who have and share the same commitment to systems improvement. They may have different approaches than you do, but if down deep they are committed to improving the system, they're going to be the right people to have on the bus. And can I just ask, in terms of getting the right people on the bus, do you figure out kind of where you want to go first and then start identifying the right people? Or do you have a people already on a bus and start talking about an idea? I always wonder, is it a chicken-egg problem? How, yeah, what's the best approach? That's a good question. And uh, Jim Collins sort of addresses that. And he said, you can spend a lot of time on vision statements and mission statements, and then find people to fulfill those mission statements. And what his research indicated was, no, no, no don't. First, get the right people. Okay. If you've got the right people, then their uh, commitment to the corporation, to the institution, to systems change, to children, to doing justice, whatever it is, that will drive the mission and um, so the starting point is getting the, right, getting the right people on the bus. And by right people, I mean the folks that have the commitment to the system in the best interest of, the, of advancing the organization. And then finally, I guess the, th the third point is um, engage in collaboration as, as a method. Avoid the buy-in, I've got a good idea, now let's get the stakeholders around to implement it but to actually understand that the essence of collaboration is the willingness, one, to listen, and secondly, to change your system in order to accomplish the greater good. And that's ultimately the two and two equals five. So this next portion of the, of the, of the episode is getting to know the guests. So I got a couple questions here. First of all, what surprised you most about this podcast today? What surprised me is, is the branch is interested in doing something like this, that a, uh, uh, it's sort of outside the traditional box of what judges and um, judicial administrators and uh, SEO folks do, I think, or yeah. my perception of that. Well, I think we're moving in this direction. Technology is giving us some opportunities to, I keep saying it, but build community, share, teach, and learn from one another. and. Um, Hopefully leave a legacy. Some of these topics like the one we talked about today, I think this information is going to be good five years from now. If somebody's wondering about court cultures, it's a starting point. What's your favorite place in Colorado? Just about any place in the mountains. Hmm. I really uh, find the power and permanency of the mountains to be caused me to think reflectively um so I, that that's inspirational for me to just be any place uh, in the mountains so where's somewhere in the world that you dream of visiting one day i really like to go to china uh grew up in germany and france and japan my dad being in the military uh i've worked in iran worked in iraq uh, done tours in the Republic of Georgia and Panama. So 
been around a lot of places, but China's on China's on my list. It's uh, as we've been talking about a very very different culture, uh, with cultural foundations that are much different than we're used to in the West. And there's a part of me that I think appreciates that they are our only uh, true uh, military and um, uh, economic competitors. And as we go forward in the next several decades, it's China that we really need to understand. Makes sense, yeah. What's your perfect meal? My perfect meal uh, would be some uh, smoked uh, ribs that uh, I do. Uh, and it's sort of a process. I mean, the end result is, is good. I mean, they're, they're good ribs. But I start at midnight smoking them and smoke them until about 6 or 7 in the morning. I have to get up frequently during the night to check to make sure the smoker is working. Uh, and then my wife puts the finishing touches on them in the oven. And it's, so it's a process. It's not just the, the end state of having the meal. And then she does a, a corn, uh, corn, southern corn casserole. Uh, and that's one part, is the food. The other part for a perfect meal for me would be the company. Okay. And that is who's there. Uh, are they interesting people? Are they interesting to listen to? Uh, do they have ideas that uh, help me uh, think about things differently? So it would be a combination of great food that I've spent a long time preparing and the right people, interesting people. All right, and lastly, what is something you believed for a long time that you later found to be untrue? Bill, it has to do with uh, with really understanding addiction. Okay. I think uh, I grew up in a military family. Much of my career has been uh, in the military, either active duty or reserve. And I really grew up in a environment where the mindset was Addiction was a failure of willpower and that all you needed to do to beat a substance abuse issue was be strong enough to say, I'm going to stop. And I realize now that has almost a Protestant moral component to it that being uh, addicted or having a substance abuse problem was a, a failure of character and a, a moral failure. And what I've learned doing this for a while now, particularly uh, with the juvenile courts and veterans court, is that it's not a moral failure at all. It's not a matter of, you know, you have to have enough will uh, to do it. You have to hit bottom. You have to want to change your life before it will be effective. Those things really aren't true. Uh, forced treatment works. Uh, being addicted uh, is more understandable as a medical issue than it is a moral or willpower issue. And it's really uh, taken me a while to realize that. Uh, so I would say that uh, me today uh, no longer uh, has the approach that I grew up with, and that is that people that are addicted, um, there's something morally deficient in them. So I know you've run a veterans court for many years, and you are, I think, a peer court. You go around the country and help to provide technical assistance and training to others, or they come to see your court? They come to see us, that's right. And so I just, this is a great Great answer, because I'm guessing that working with the veterans in that court and sort of getting to know everybody and kind of seeing the collaboration that that court required helped helped kind of flip your understanding of addiction. That, definitely, but also my time as the presiding juvenile judge. Okay. Because you, you have to ask yourself, why you know, would mothers do something that they know is going to result in losing their children? And... um. That's a hard question to to answer, and the predicament for parents, it's difficult to understand if you're approaching it from a willpower, uh, just suck it up and stop drinking approach, when you really understand um, that they can't. 
they can't change. There's suffering and pain behind that and that behavior. Right. I I remember uh, before I became a judge, my mentor judge was Cheryl Post. And I spent a day with Cheryl, and it was a termination hearing in the 18th. And uh, a mother who had significant substance abuse issues that ultimately resulted in, in more than one conviction. But even that uh, hardened, uh, tough drug addict, when it came time for the judge to terminate parental rights, was crying and um, asking for another chance. And that really made an impression on me, even before I became a judge, mm-hmm. as to what, how did she get herself in this predicament that her children are going to be taking, taken away from her and all the chances that she has. And you, you've, you've dealt in the DNN area. You, we know that we don't quickly uh, terminate parental rights. Um, so how, how does this work? And it has come to me, the definition of being addicted is you continue to use even knowing that there are going to be adverse consequences, particularly adverse legal consequences to your life, you continue to use. And that really has been eye-opening to me initially in the juvenile court. But then later with veterans, I see folks who have been successful. They've served honorably in combat. They've, they've joined the military at a time when they knew they were going to be sent to war. Mm. They've done stuff that most high school age and college-age people don't do. Join an institution that requires them to put their lives on the line. And yet here they are in my court, three or four years later, addicted to drugs. How did this happen and why can't they stop? They were good enough to serve in situations that all of us would run away from. Uh, But they said, when asked, you know, not being asked, choose me, send me. And now here they are drug addicted. So both of those, the, the parents in the juvenile court, the veterans that I deal with in veterans court, all those experiences have directed me to really conclude that my earlier feelings about addiction and willpower were wrong. Well, thank you. I think that's a great place to stop. I just want to say thank you for joining the podcast today. And um, before you meet with the court services standing committee and, and work with uh, others in the branch on on allocating resources and the other things we do on that committee. But thank you. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you for having me. And more importantly, thank you for doing this project. This is great. All right. Thanks. Well, that's it for this episode of Beyond the Collabo Battle. Listen, learn, listen, lead, learn, take action. Listen, learn, listen, learn, take action. Listen, learn, listen, learn, take action.